sun shining brightly, and there's no wind much, just a little breeze. Quite nice. A uh, couple of things as, as an update. <clears throat> Several had asked about how Joc- uh, Jocelyn, I was looking at Jocelyn when I said that, uh, at uh, Gloria's husband, Burke, and how he's doing. So she, she gave me a pretty good update this morning. Uh, he is in certainly very dire straits with his health. Uh, I, I don't want to go into all the details of it, but uh, he has two tubes for feeding and relieving uh, uh, the gastric juices and so on from his stomach. And <clears throat> the doctors are trying to be hopeful or give him hope. Uh, they don't have him drugged now that they're able to move, remove the gastric juices and alleviate some of his, uh, his nausea. But they say he also has a blood clot in his spleen, but because of the tubes going into him, they can't give him blood thinners, uh, or those will leak blood. So it's kind of a catch-22 in that sense. And uh, on top of the pancreatic cancer, of course, he has severe heart uh, problems as well as diabetes and uh, just a plethora of different physical ailments. So... I think we pretty well understand the order of resurrection and where he will more than likely get his opportunity in salvation. So I told her I'm not necessarily praying so much for him as I am for her and her difficult struggle she's going through and taking care of him and so on. So (coughs) that's kind of an update on that. Well. Sharon reports her ribs are getting better, but she just says, I'm so weak. I'm 84 years old, and <coughs> being blind, that complicates things even beyond. But she wants to be here, and is in her ancient condition and with her health problems and, and blindness, she's looking seriously at getting out here permanently very soon. So... Uh, we might keep her in mind with our prayers. Also, Linda Davis from up at Flint uh, wanted to come out, fly out for the holy days, but it didn't quite work out with kids and her kids and health and so on. But they're all here in heart, among others. And uh, I, I was pleased that Glory, even though what she's going through, she keeps talking about us here and how God's done some blessing and how wonderful it is and her, her heart obviously is here so that's a, that's a positive and I appreciate that and we are only six weeks from Pentecost the first week is in the book so we got six Sabbaths left until Pentecost on June 17th I think it still says 24th on the website we need to change that it should be the 17th of June, <coughs> with the count being done properly. Well, we'll finish this series up today. Uh, we got down to Song of Songs, chapter 5, <coughs> last evening. <coughs> I, I'm having difficulty talking. I sucked a little coffee down the wrong tube a while ago, so I hope it clears here in a bit. And I can continue. But... Uh, we went through the first verse of chapter 5, and I want to back up to that because there's an additional point that came to mind here. Uh, I did speak of the different 
imagery that God uses to describe our relationship with Christ as our elder brother, uh, as uh, our husband-to-be, and various other analogies he uses. So let's look at verse 1 from that standpoint. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. Now, at first you might, well, did he marry his sister? No, uh, but he says that he is our elder brother. So this is a prophecy here. He did not speak of us as, in that sense, a brother or sister until he came and shared brotherhood with us while he was here on the earth. In fact, he is not even called the Son of God until he was born here on this earth. (coughs) So, he became a son of the Father as we are. And we became brothers and sisters of Christ. And he uses that analogy going forward in the New Testament. But here it is, clear back in the Song of Songs. And this shows, again, that this is a prophecy for the future. God was looking far ahead. So, he uses sister first then spouse, because obviously this is more about husband and wife, but he throws these other things in, and there's one more in here that I didn't really pick up on, we'll get to. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice, I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey, I have drunk my wine with my milk, eat, O friends. And he only had a very limited number of those that he called friends in the Old Testament, I think. Moses and Abraham may be the only ones. I don't recall another that he used that term with. But there, at his last Passover, he told the apostles, I count you as friends. You will be friends from now on. So, we're talking about prophecy of things that would occur in the New Testament right here in the Song of Songs. He uses three different uh, projections. Brother, sister, wife, and friend. So we can all, with each of those, have a little bit different meaning or a little different reflection of our relationship with Christ. And they're all mentioned right here together. And of course, as I said, this one is predominantly of the husband-wife, which is really the deepest one because all through the rest of the Bible, it's about the bride and the bridegroom. And even at the end of Revelation, that's what it talks about more than it does friends or brothers or sisters or so on. (coughs) So this is an end-time prophecy. Verse 2, here's the second dream. I sleep, remember the ten virgins, all slept, but my heart wakes. I'm dreaming, but... My heart is still pondering, thinking. My emotions are still there. It is the voice of my beloved that knocks, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love. Now, Christ says, I stand at the door and knock there in Matthew. And who will answer? Uh, He says that in Revelation 3, in fact. They're about Laodicea. I'm I'm knocking on the door. Uh, Who is going to respond? So, the ten virgins in Matthew and and the Laodiceans in Revelation 3, we're all in that position where he knocks on the door. Now what's going to happen next? Now, this this was a difficult dream in some respects. Uh, I sleep, but my heart wakes. It is a voice of my beloved that knocks, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, 
my undefiled. I quoted the other day, Hebrews 13.4, where he says, Marriage is honorable, and the bed is undefiled. So God created the bed, the sexual relationship, to be an honorable thing, an upright thing, a good thing, something to be shared between a husband and wife only. And there it carries honor and respect and love and typology of the Godhead of Christ and His church. So it is a very, very important part of being a physical human being because it is the apex. It is the highest analogy of our relationship with Christ. So he spends this whole book and many other scriptures on it that I wanted to cover to give a backup to this. So he considers her undefiled. Now, if you go into your neighbor's wife, he calls that defiling her. So sex there is cheapened, and it loses its spiritual purpose and analogy and importance. I read an article today that was very interesting. They've done a study and a research, and they found that a woman retains in her body the DNA of every man that she has had sex with. It was an interesting study that, that is unprotected or, or where the sperm actually enters her body, that it actually goes in, can impregnate, but it goes into her internal organs and even up into her brain, and they found that DNA there and they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't want to accept the possibility that that was the explanation Uh, And it was with male children that were born that carried the DNA. But the father and the mother share the DNA, and the DNA of the child that is born is from those two combined. But they found DNA there from other men. And they finally had to conclude that it was from having, uh, not marital, but uh, intercourse. And that that stayed with that woman forever. A kind of an interesting thing. Another reason why God would say, don't become joined, because that joining remains. And it can affect things. So I don't know how far that study will go, but it was just interesting that I, I saw that this morning. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm trying to get that coffee out of my lung. Anyway, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. So she was sleeping and had this dream. And uh, then verse 4, My beloved put his hand by the door latch, and my bowels were moved for him. Her internal emotions and feelings, bowels uh, he uses in terms of of, uh, emotion very often in the Scripture. Because sometimes when you get good news or bad news, it's like being hit in the gut. Uh, because that is a very uh, significant area of nerve endings that have to do with emotion. So they use this terminology. So uh, he knocks, and I put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? Sometimes in a dream you have things that you don't know how to handle. 
you, you know something needs to be done, but you don't know how to do it or can't get it done. Sometimes we have those recurring dreams. Maybe a lot of people have the one where they're falling and they can't stop it. I, 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 I got no control here. What am I going to do? I've had one that's recurred several times, maybe because I was a hunter, but uh, of trying to pull the trigger and it wouldn't pull. I have this beautiful animal out there that I want to harvest and the trigger won't pull. And I work at it and work at it. And it just won't happen. Frustrating. It's real. In the dream, it's so real. So you probably have others that come to mind. Well, I think that's what she was suffering here. You know, I'm in bed, I'm asleep, and yet here I am dreaming of my beloved, and he knocks on the door, and I want to let him in, but I can't get up out of the bed and throw the covers off and get my feet cold. They're washed. I don't want to get them dirty on the floor. Uh, how shall I defile them? I mean, here's something her beloved, the one she loved more than anything else there is, and yet she was having trouble responding. Ever think of that in your spiritual life? We know we want to open the door to Christ. We know we want to be eager and receptive. And yet things, our minds, our carnality or whatever, get in our way of being able to respond to Him the way we want to. So my bowels were moved for Him. I rose up to open to my beloved. So there was some delay. I finally, I finally got it together and I, I rose up to go open the door. And my hands dropped with myrrh and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. She said, no, I'm prepared. I've, I, I've got this sweet smell about me and when he hugs me, oh, he's going to be impressed and embrace this lovely scent that I'm putting out. And I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. What a nightmare. How, how empty would you feel after that kind of anticipation builds as you go to the door and then he's gone? Like the ten virgins, the five that slumbered and slept and didn't have any oil and then he was gone. There's a lot of New Testament right here in this little book. An awful lot of New Testament. My soul failed when he spoke. Uh, the Hebrew says, I nearly died. <laughs> A much, much uh, stronger statement than my soul failed. Well, I, that is dying. When your soul fails, you give up the ghost, you die. So, but a little better terminology. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. And that's where we've been as a church now for some decades. Not getting much of an answer. Just a little bit here and there, but not much. Enough to keep us going, but no answer. So the watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. Now, in the previous time, the watchman says, Where is your beloved? We haven't seen him. This time in the dream, they beat her up. Now, does it say in Matthew 24 that we're going to be persecuted and beaten up? And even by those who were supposedly our watchmen. Uh, he says there in Zechariah 11 that the ministers 
beat on the people. Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, Malachi 1, name them. How the watchmen beat upon the people and wouldn't feed them what they needed and weren't treating them the way they ought to be treated. And here we find the roots of that analogy that's used in those other scriptures. Those scriptures are written after this. Did those men go back and read this and quote it? Or did the same mind that inspired this inspire those minds to write what they wrote that all fit and dovetail together as the whole Bible does? How can a book written over roughly a thousand year period or more by around 40 different authors all agree and not contradict and have the same story throughout? That's an incredible miracle there designed by an almighty God. That couldn't be done among men. Trillions to none chances of that happening. Anyway, uh, she was persecuted, pummeled and beat. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. They uh, uncovered her face so that all might see who she was. And we will be revealed as well as to who we are at some point. Nobody knows now much. A few here in the church now and then, but our reputation is very low, primarily not because of you, because of me. And uh, we will be exposed to the church and the world. So she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that's the church, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, says Zion, Jerusalem, the church of the living God are all the same thing in prophecy. If you find my beloved, now isn't the whole church kind of looking for Christ and looking for his answers? All the virgin daughters, splinters of worldwide church of God, yeah, they'd all like to think Christ is with them and guiding and leading their work. Uh, so... If you find my beloved, that you tell him, I'm lovesick. Tell him, I'm the one that really loves him. I'm the one that wants him so badly. Heart, mind, body, and soul. She tells that to the other ones. And they say, who is your beloved more than another beloved? What's so special about your guy? Oh, you fairest among women. Now, they recognize at some point that she is the fairest of all, and that's the one that Christ wants. But they say, how do you have an inside track? <laughs> Who do you think you are? Why do you think God loves you, or Christ loves you, or has chosen you above any other? What's so special about the one that you claim to be your husband among us? What is he more than another beloved that you do so charge us? Why are you telling us this? And then she answers, My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. Uh, Christ was uh, a pale face, a white man. He's you know, just line the men up. He is the finest. This is a physical analogy, but isn't Christ the finest of all? No question. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. So he had beautiful skin that she compared to gold and uh, apparently black hair. You don't see that in the pictures of 
Christ that the Protestants or the Catholics put out. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. She, she said, you ask me what's so special about him? I'll tell you. Then she starts describing in great superlatives what her love is like. His cheek are as a bed of spices as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. Nothing much more beautiful than a flower garden with the aroma that comes from it and the beauty of the different colors of flowers. His hands are as gold rings set with beryl. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. Now, you don't normally think of a body that way, but she's trying to describe, you know, this, this guy's special. His legs are as pillars of marble, strong, Sets upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. I was out sitting in the yard this morning looking up at the cottonwoods against the blue sky. Just a beautiful rendition of God's capacity to create. That's kind of what she's describing here, cedars instead of cottonwoods, but same principle. Uh, His mouth, or as the Hebrew says, his word... The words he speak to me is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. You ask, she says, this is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So, not just a marital relationship, but also close friends, as we are to be with Christ. So, he's telling us here that in our engagement period where we sit today, we're to be coming to have these kind of feelings and emotions and thoughts of Him. And then when the marriage is consummated through the resurrection and the marriage, then all these things become spiritually passionate in ways that we cannot grasp. But the best way that He has created for us to grasp it is a warm, sweet, loving intimate relationship between a husband and wife. Done properly, that is as close to an understanding of the spiritual relationship we will always have with Christ and the Father throughout eternity. That's why it should not be defiled. It should be done properly and right and in order and be a honorable, a lovable, a... I'm trying to say royal because of king and queen that we are to be with him. On to chapter 6. Where is your beloved gone, O you fairest among women? Remember what he told the disciples? I will be back with you, but for now I go away to prepare a place for you. And I will return. So, Pentecost pictures the engagement of the church to Christ. And then you have a long, hot summer in which he's not around. And then he returns. So, here it is. Where did he go? He's gone. Where is your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? So, these other churches out here, once they understand where Christ is working, they're going to say, where is he? says seven women will take hold of one man. 
He'll plant seven churches in the wilderness, Isaiah 41. Everything in here ties together with end-time prophecy. And then she explains that he is close with her, that they have not been included. So there will be a 10% remnant that ultimately are invited, but he has to choose the one first that he is going to work through. So she says, My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. Description of her anatomy, and, and he's gone somewhere down there. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds among the lilies. So use of flowers and sweet things uh, that he enjoys about her. So it's not just us, again, doting upon Christ but we need to understand his emotion for us. That is as real in here as it is the other direction. <clears throat> and if anything, it's more real because his emotions are true and pure and loyal and faithful. And he's never gone through the kind of abuse that a lot of us have that has uh, diminished somewhat the kind of feeling that we ought to be able to have. Now, I think he understands it without doubt because he was abused and misused and ultimately killed. <clears throat> so he understands what it's like to be rejected and hated and persecuted and murdered. And the persecution that is coming on uh, God's people and upon so-called Christians worldwide right now he understands anyway he feeds on her body he is so enamored with her and from from head to toe you are beautiful oh my love as tira comely as jerusalem now jerusalem used there uh, jerusalem is where god is going to dwell forever with his bride so to say, you're like Jerusalem, that's the most holy, wonderful place on earth. And he says, you're like Jerusalem to me. You're precious to me. Terrible as an army with banners. <coughs> and it is impressive as a colony of marching soldiers with flags. <coughs> Excuse me, I think I got rid of all that coffee now. Anyway, five, turn away your eyes from me, for they have overcome me. I, I, your eyes are so compelling and impelling that, man, I can hardly look in your eyes. I get so excited. My hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Uses the same uh, verbiage he did earlier. Your teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing where everyone bears twins and there's not one barren among them. you still got all your teeth. They're white, and they're all lined up right. And just beautiful when you smile upon me. And we want Christ smiling on us, don't we, instead of turning His head and saying, I can't look at you. Maybe that's part of what's being said up there where He says, turn your eyes from me. Uh, he, he can't bear to look at our sin. And yet then He turns and smiles and looks upon us. Uh, seven, as a piece of pomegranate are your temples by your hair. Pomegranate is uh, 
is kind of reddish and, and pretty, uh, like healthy, live skin, not dull and washed out with poor health. Then there's a comparison made in verse 8. <clears throat> there are three score queens and four score concubines and virgins without number. There's a lot of people out there right now, a lot of splinter groups, people on their own. Uh, they're not looked upon the same way Christ is going to look upon His chosen one, the one He will work through. So, yeah, they're out there without number. Verse 9, My dove, my undefiled, uses that word again in this uh, context of very, very intimate relationships. He uses undefiled several times, showing that the Catholics and the Victorians and various ones were totally upside down and backward with their abominable teachings about sex being evil and wrong and a woman's body being uh, something that ought to be hid away from eyes of her husband and so on. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her that bore her. So we had our mother worldwide, and out of that came many daughters, but God is going to pick the choicest one for him, the one that he wants to look at. Give her honor, he says in Proverbs 31. The daughters saw her and blessed her, just as they did Esther, the rest of the ladies that were gathered together to be king, I mean the queen for Ahasuerus. Uh, and they all looked at Esther and praised her because she was the most beautiful of all. So they blessed her. Yes, the queens and the concubines, those who were legitimate and those who were illegitimate, all praised her. Verse 10 is interesting. Who is she that looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? Can you think of a sister verse for that one? Try Revelation 12. I'm going to go back and read that one, not just quote it. Because it is so obvious that there is a tie-in between these two chapters. Uh, Revelation 12. Well, I can't pull enough pages to get there. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven... A woman, known of as a church, we are, uh, the church is the mother, she's a woman, Galatians 6, 16, and Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. A woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now notice, she being with child cried, travailing in birth, in pain to be delivered. Now, how many scriptures in the Old Testament prophecies have we read that said essentially that same thing? Over and over and over again. So this is speaking about the church. <clears throat> A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. Doesn't he tell us that we are to be clothed in white garments of righteousness. Now, his face right now shines as the sun in its full glory. But here it says that she shines. Well, aren't we to be a light to the world? 
aren't we to shine out to the world? And His Spirit, His glory, shines out from us to be a light to the world. Now, this isn't once we're glorified that we have this. This is still talking about here and now. It's an end-time prophecy. Notice that. There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns on his head. This <coughs> is the beast power here at the end time, as described in other chapters. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Who did that? Satan took a third of the angels and caused them to fall to the earth where God has let them rule since. Satan is the prince of the power of the air and the present evil ruler of this world. And look at this world. Wow. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, in Isaiah 7, it says, To the church will be born the man-child. He tells us to be in pain and be delivered in Micah 4. And then in Isaiah 60s, and on and on it goes. Uh, So, the devil's still around right here, right? And he's waiting for Christ to manifest himself through that woman, that chosen one, to be delivered of her, and and him to deliver her. And he's waiting for that. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God into his throne. So it goes all the way back to when Christ was born on the earth, that this analogy fits. And then it is also carried through as an end-time prophecy when he comes back as Emmanuel, God with us, to dwell with the church through these end-time things whether visibly or not, is neither here nor there. He's, he's not going to be on the throne above. He's going to be dwelling with us here. Doesn't need to be seen necessarily, but he may manifest himself some. I don't know that. Anyway, uh, all those scriptures in the Old Testament are referring forward to when he was born the first time, and then when we give birth to him here at the end. And this is an end-time prophecy here. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that she should be fed for 1260 days. So it shows in Micah 4 and other scriptures where to go to the wilderness. He says he'll set up seven trees in the wilderness in Isaiah 41. And seven women or churches will take care of hold of one man, Zerubbabel, in that wilderness. So all of it fits together. And war in heaven and Satan was cast down and it goes on to show that the accuser of the brethren uh, tries, when the, when the uh, beast power takes over, the one with the ten heads and seven horns, or seven heads and ten horns, when it takes over, it will defile the temple that we have built and Jerusalem, and then we will have to flee the flight of Matthew 24, where you don't go in and pick anything up, you just go. Because he says, Satan's army will destroy you if you're left behind or hesitate. And that that that, that army then will be swallowed up as it goes on. And then he will go back and fight those who are the remnant of the church left in the tribulation, which is 90% of the church. Other scriptures fill this out. So this is still an end time prophecy where it says that her she'll shine as the moon and as the sun. Christ's spirit shining through 
human beings as a light to the world. So it's stated right here in Song of Songs, in his close relationship with her, and as an army with banners, what does it say there in Micah? We'll send out seven, eight principal men who will send the Assyrian army uh, crashing away as fast as they can go and maybe killing themselves and each other the way they did in Gideon's day. He says he'll make us a sharp threshing machine with a horn of iron and hooves of brass, not only for our enemies who are proximate today, but the whole Assyrian army. When they invade this nation, the little bitty tiny church, by the power of God, will send them packing and destroy. So this is prophecy all the way through. Verse 11, I went down into the garden of nuts to see the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. It's been a while here, a few verses, but he's got to check her out again, or her him. Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Aminadab. Aminadab means uh, uh, I knew not or uh, set me in the chariots of my willing people. Now, is Christ going to come to his willing people? Yes, he is. To those who have made themselves ready, who are willing to do whatever he wants done. They'll come and help build the temple, Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, so, she comes like the chariots of Amenadab. And we discussed yesterday the chariots of fire that Christ is uh, going to use again. I mean, it was done in Elijah's time, and <coughs> Ezekiel is an end-time prophecy. And there are two chapters devoted to the chariots of fire, the portable throne of Christ, and the end-time book of Ezekiel. So I have no doubt that they are to be used again as transportation for the willing people. <coughs> Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Isn't that what we plead to Christ? Return, thy kingdom come. Please bring us you. Uh, Shulamite in the Hebrew means peaceful. Or it was like a pet name. Uh, what do husbands and wives use? They come up with different uh, nicknames or pet names for each other. Uh, one might say peaches and cream. Might, one might say honey bunches or, you know, just various things uh, that you have used, I have used with your beloved. So it is kind of a pet name, and it also means completed or safe. Well, when are we going to be complete and safe and at peace? When Christ returns. I will bring peace in this place, Haggai 2.9. So please return, O Shulamite, as it were the company of two armies. You're going to have two witnesses going out like two armies. And then he is going to return riding on a white horse and his bride with him to, for the final put-down of everybody left on this earth that will not bow and bend their knees to him. Let's go on to chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet with shoes, O prince's daughter. 
Where do you see that used? Let's go to Isaiah 40. Uh, or does it use here? Does he use that here? I was thinking he did. How beautiful upon the feet. Uh, o Zion that bring good tidings, get you up into the high mountain and bring good tidings to Jerusalem. It doesn't, uh, doesn't mention that, but it does in Isaiah 52. <clears throat> Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good things, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, Your God reigns. So here is a prophecy of the very end time. Next chapter is about the Passover and then the gathering in chapter 54. So it is the time here of the end. It says almost the same words. How beautiful are your feet here in uh, Song of Songs with shoes, O prince's daughter. Now Christ in that sense is both prince and king. Uh, and we're the daughter. He is the king and we're the queen. He is the prince and we're the daughter. Whichever royalty you want to use, and that's what he uses here. Then he describes her, he starts down at her thighs... Uh, he calls her the prince's daughter. How beautiful are your feet? He actually doesn't start with her thighs. He starts with her feet. He starts at the bottom, and then he works his way up her body. The joints of your thighs are like jewels, the works of the hands of a cunning workman. So what God made in the thigh area, he says, is designed by a very cunning workman, the father and the son who created her who made her like she is, to be enjoyed, to be appreciated, to be beautiful. Your navel moves up a bit, is like a round goblet which wants not liquor. Uh, your, your tummy, your, your navel is so sweet, I could just lick a, royal, a crown royal out of it. Uh, use your imagination which wants not liquor. Your belly is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Uh, smooth, soft, uh, like flowers. Your two breasts are like two young rows that are twins. Your neck is as a tower of ivory sticking above your chest. Your eyes like the fish pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is the tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head upon you is like Carmel, and the, the hair of your head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. You see a, a, uh, a mountain with trees on it. It's a lot more beautiful than a mountain that's barren. So he says, your head is like Carmel, trees, uh, flowers, beauty. So he starts with her feet and works all the way up. There's nothing from head to foot, or foot to head here, uh, that isn't beautiful to him. As I said last night, wouldn't it be nice if Christ could look down at us with this imagery in his mind and say, Oh, my church, my people, my sister, my spouse, my betrothed, you're just so lovely to me from head to from foot to head. 
I, I hope we can reach that point that he can do that. Now, we're still, in, again, in the engagement period and we're not as beautiful as we will be after the moment in the twinkling of an eye when the last trump sounds. We, we still got our warts, we still got our blemishes, we still got our problems, but we will become perfect in that instant. And that's the bride he's looking for. So, betrothed, engaged, the attitude needs to be zealous, passionate, desirous, hoping, wanting, praying for his return, O Shulamite. And then we are made to absolute perfection in the resurrection so that we then are of like kind and can be his perfect bride throughout all eternity. See why he wants us prepping now? This is an important period of time for us to be becoming as much as we can that which he wants. And he describes that right here. I, I don't think that we'll ever attain quite to chapter 7, 1 through 5 uh, and on in this life. But we can go as much there as we can and we can use our physical human marriages to try to duplicate what he is talking about here in love and closeness and intimacy, companionship, friendship, love. Verse 6, How fair and how pleasant are you, O love, for delight. You're just, oh, delightful to me. Luscious, delicious. Use any number of synonyms here. This your stature is like to a palm tree. Palm trees, everybody likes to look at palm trees. They're stately. They just go up into the air and then they have the, block, the, 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 the fronds on top and so on. Beautiful trees. Elegant trees. Like a palm tree. And your breast to clusters of grapes. Sweet analogy there. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. <laughs> I'm going to climb your body from down here where I am on up. And I will take hold of the boughs thereof. Now also your breast shall be as clusters of the vine. Grapes again. And the smell of your nose like apples. The roof of your mouth like the best wine for my beloved. Love to kiss her mouth. Top of her mouth, her tongue, under her tongue, he said earlier. Uh, this is pretty deep and pretty passionate imagery here. That goes down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. He says, if kissing you like this don't wake you up, there ain't nothing going to wake you up. Uh, you, you're, you're asleep and suddenly your emotions come alive and uh, you're ready to speak. Oh, give me more of that. <clears throat> That's the kind of passion we need to be developing for Christ. I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. He, I'm his wholeheartedly, totally, completely, utterly faithful and loyal. That's what Christ wants out of us toward him. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Verse 11, Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. <coughs> the perfect description of his Zechariah 2 here about how Jerusalem will be built as villages with much men and cattle. So, didn't he say earlier, uh, I'll meet you in the secret places of the stairs, 
And now he says, let's go dwell in the villages. He's going to call us together, gather us up, and then put us in the villages and begin building the temple of God. Verse 12, let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grapes appear and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give you my loves. So Haggai, when we gather, he stirs us to come and we willingly go out to do his project. He says, let's get up early. Let's go look now. Let's not wait. It's time. That's what Haggai says. It's time to do this. And that's where I'll really show you my love is when you're busy in this project with me. The mandrakes give a smell and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I've laid up for you, O my beloved. So blessings from the past and blessings from the future he has laid up for us. All these things we've talked about that he is going to bless us with in all these prophecies are going to come to pass because he loves his bride and he wants to pamper her and take care of her and do everything he can to make her happy. Are we listening, men? Chapter 8. Oh, that you are as my brother that sucked the breasts of my mother. So, use the analogy she does of her little baby brother and she wants him hooked on like that baby's hooked on to mama uh, a lot. So, he says, be satisfied with her breasts there in Proverbs 1 through 7. There's quite a bit of imagery there about uh, how a man should be toward his wife. Not satisfied with the breasts of other women, but your own. Not a strange woman. Uh, when I should find you without, I would kiss you. Yes, I should not be despised. I want this to be open, want it to be public, want it for everyone to be able to see the love that is there. Well, now, if we be, are the bride of Christ and we have all these people in the millennium, we're going to want them to see the kind of love that Christ and His bride that we have with Him so that it is on display what can happen if you have the right kind of loving relationship and then there can be the perfect marriage and the people in the millennium can see the interaction of Christ and His bride and they will be drawn to that. So this is a projection for the future. I would lead you and bring you into my mother's house. I would love to call you into the church. I would like you to be part of things. Who would instruct me? Teach me the things of God. Well, aren't the two witnesses pictured as the golden candlesticks there in Zechariah 4, feeding those who have come the Word of God to teach them? about God's ways? And aren't we then, as kings and priests in the millennium, there to instruct the people who come through who have no clue who God really is, the hundred million inhabitants that are left on the earth, according to Daniel? 
I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate, whatever that is. His left hand should be under my head and his right hand should embrace me. So he goes right back to the intimate relationship between the two and that there are those who would come to the mother's house that need instructed and they need to learn how true intimacy is and what God intended from the beginning with Adam and Eve, which they had and then very quickly lost because of sin. And we've been dealing with it ever since. But when sin is gone and we are immortal, then it will come to this. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, uh, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he please. When the time is right, he will wake up and he will come and respond to us. And hopefully, when he knocks, we won't be in the middle of a dream and can't get up, but we will be there and respond immediately to him. Verse 5, Who is this that comes up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? The church leans on who? On Christ. Where? In the wilderness. Many scriptures indicate that. Here at the end time. I raised you up under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she brought you forth that bear you. So the church is the one who espoused the children there. Uh, Paul used that analogy. He says, my, my dear children, my little children. Now, we are to call no man father, so he did not do it in a uh, priesthood situation like we all have to speak to the father. No, it was as a family analogy, totally different, my little children, because he had brought them, nourished them, taught them the truth as babes, as infants. So, the one who is chosen here to be the leader uh, is told, don't wake him up till he's ready, till he please, and he will come from the wilderness. And he says that she is the apple of his eye again in Zechariah 2. <coughs> and he will come and dwell with us. And the church is what bore us. Many were called and now few are being chosen. And hopefully we're among those. Verse 6, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Doesn't he say there in the last verse or two of Haggai that he will set Zerubbabel as a signet or a seal, uh, as, an, uh, as a, a, a witness of God? For love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. So the love between Christ and his bride is to be as strong as you can get. Uh, and no jealousy is allowed, because jealousy is a very cruel thing. When somebody has something you want and you're jealous of it, it doesn't really hurt them, it hurts you. So we need to be part of what is going on, not sitting back being jealous of it. Now, we're part of it, and we're the ones that Christ is dwelling with and answering the prayers of. Those out in the tribulation are going to be jealous. And it is going to be a very heart-rending thing when they realize those people are being blessed, and I'm out here being persecuted, and I'm going to be martyred and killed, and there will be jealousy there, and it will be a very cruel hurt. 
but maybe it will lead to their repentance and still they will be included as part of the bride. Zechariah seems to indicate about a third of those left in tribulation will repent. So, it is a cruel thing, and as cruel as the grave, because they're going to die a death of martyrdom. Probably all of them. And I say them, because I hope we're included in those who are called and gathered and used. I'm not going to say that we are, because we wait and see, and we do our best to please Him and hope that He works through us. Anyway, the coals thereof are as coals of fire, which has a most vehement flame. So there will be great jealousy among those who are not included. Many waters cannot quench love. This is coming to the climax here of all of this intimacy and this adoration and this description of each other is coming to a climax is what a, an intimate marriage relationship does. So here at the end, that's what he's describing. Many waters cannot quench love. Now they're going to send armies out as well. Uh, waters are typified as armies in the Bible, and an army will come after the church. But no, we're going with Christ, and we're going to have the climax of this end-time age and prophecies with Him. And that's a type of the intimacy and climax that come with us being changed and marrying Him on the sea of glass before the Father's throne. So everything that happens in the meantime is a symbol or a type of that. So we're at the climax of the age. <laughs> we're here at the end of all things. And we're supposed to be as close with Christ as we can be in Him dwelling with us. And we have joy and happiness and all of those things that the intimate part of a marriage brings. So the floods can't drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would be utterly incomparable. So this is talking about a, a sexual intimate climax. Nothing to compare to it. Then he describes something else here. We have a little sister. So he uses the analogy of brothers and sisters, just like he does with Christ being our elder brother. And here it comes out again. Uh, he has chosen one of the virgins to be the one that he is working through. But we have other siblings out there that need to be gathered and drawn and taken care of. So let's see the description used here. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. She hasn't hit puberty yet. Uh, she's, she's coming along. She's getting close, but she's not there quite yet. Not marriageable yet, okay? Not betrothable yet. Uh, she doesn't understand. She doesn't get it. She's not adult enough or mature enough spiritually to understand what's going on. How many people... If they heard the sermons that we get here, that are all over our website, hundreds of them, how many people understand those? How many people, if they heard them, would understand them? About the church and building the temple? No, that's the Jews are doing that. That's all over in the Middle East. There's hardly anything that we have learned that we know and have seen in Scripture that they would agree with. They're still 
below puberty <laughs> in that sense on a, on a spiritual level. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she shall be spoken for? What if she begins to grasp and to understand? What if she starts growing up and maturing and reaches the point where somebody would say, I'll speak for that one, I want that one, where Christ might. If she be a wall, we will build upon her a palace of silver. So here's this young girl, and as she starts to develop, if she's a wall, that is, impenetrable, she remains a virgin, we'll decorate her with silver, because that is the state she should be in. And if she be a door, easily entered, we will enclose, enclose her with boards of cedar. We'll wall her up. So when God does begin to call people in, they, they may not have been polluted before, and they will be honored. But if they have been, like in Corinth, immoral, and so on, then we'll have to board them up so they're no longer penetrable. And then they can become chaste virgins because the area of penetration has been sealed off. Pretty physical, but God uses that. And then she says, I'm not, I'm not like that little sister that we don't know how she's going to be yet. I am a wall, and my breasts like towers. Then was I in his eyes as one that found favor. So one will be more mature spiritually, be more adult, will be fully formed and uh, desirable and acceptable to him. Spiritual analogy through a physical uh, manifestation. So I found favor in his eyes. Solomon, then he compares. Uh, this, this is a description of one man, one woman, Christ and his bride. Then it uses the example of Solomon. A different story. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. Uh, he let out the vineyard to keepers, uh, hirelings, or eunuchs. Uh, when, they, when they had a, a stable of women, they always used eunuchs to take care of them because then they wouldn't fool around with the, the product. Everyone for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. So Solomon gathered up the most beautiful women from all over the earth. And he charged, it was a brothel. He couldn't handle a thousand women, seven, 300 wives and 700 concubines. No man can keep up with that. They were all young and beautiful and their hormones were raging. And there ain't no man that can handle that. So he hired them out. Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> but Solomon wouldn't allow his women to be used by customers with less than 1,000 pieces of silver. My vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Just one. You, O Solomon, must have a 1,000, and those that keep the fruit thereof, 200. So... Two hundred eunuchs to take care of a thousand women to be sure 
that they weren't misused or abused and that the money was paid before they could be. So Christ is saying, my loyalty, my faithfulness is to one. It's not like a brothel. It's not for sale. It isn't for hire. It's mine. (laughs) Nobody else. Why would then the other ones left in the tribulation be jealous? They weren't included. So it is something that is to be sacrosanct between a man and a woman and Christ and his bride. The analogy is perfect. Verse 13, You that dwell in the gardens, the companions hearken to your voice, cause me to hear it. Uh, Let's hear the truth. Let's hear what's real. Let's don't hear about Solomon and his thousand women. Let's hear about Christ and his bride. That's, that's what we need to hear. That's the thing that's important. And then it closes with verse 14. Make haste, my beloved, and be like to a deer to our young heart upon the mountains of spices. So, let's forget about Solomon. You need to jump my bones here and enjoy everything that I am. Because we are one and intimate forevermore as the bride of Christ. Now, am I off base here? Let's go to Revelation 21 and finish this. Keep what was just said in mind, and this whole book in mind for that matter, and go back to Revelation I might even start in chapter 17, or 19, I mean, to reiterate what we have just talked about. Chapter 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. The bed is honorable and undefiled. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife has made herself ready. She's done all she can to look as beautiful, as desirable, as high a character as she can. And to her was granted. He, As I said before, uh, she needed help. She was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. (coughs) And he said to me, Right, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Got to be properly dressed. Remember there in Matthew that we read about the wedding supper? Chapter 22, I think it is. And he says unto me, These are the true sayings of God. The marriage of the Lamb is what this whole Bible is. We saw the crescendo, the climax there at the end of the Song of Songs. Now let's go on to chapter 21 of Revelation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Uh, You can go back to Ezekiel 40 to 48. There's a place in there about chapter 45 or 6, I think, where it describes that all the water will be made fresh and no more salt. So it doesn't end of water, but all the seas are going to be made into fresh water. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. 
Now remember, he describes the church. Let's, I'm going to go back and read that one more time. Keep your thumb here. Hebrews 12. And uh, verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. So you're not come to the mountain, he says, where the Ten Commandments were given, where you, you were scared to death. But you are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul saying, this is what we are come to. This is what the Bible has been all about when it describes Zion and Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem. You are come to that. We'll see here in a minute, 144,000 are come to that. And to an innumerable company of angels, standing on the sea of glass, before the presence of the angels, to be married to Christ. And he puts within that context, you are come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Firstborn, firstfruits, Revelation 14, 144,000 virgins who have been made spiritual virgins, which are written in heaven, and not only you come, do you come to these, but to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Emmanuel, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks. He's the spokesman, the word of God. So he ties together here all the analogies of Zion, of Jerusalem, of the bride, the virgin, with the Father and the Son. All tied together here in these three verses, four verses. Now let's go back to Revelation 21. I saw the city, New Jerusalem. We just saw that described as the church. Coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You'll see the numbers of this city here in a moment add up to 144,000. Same as Revelation 14 and 7. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So when the millennium starts, the new heaven and the new earth will come down, and the Father and the Son, as we'll see in a few moments, will be here along with the bride, because she'll always be with him. They will never part. It is so intimate, they'll never go anywhere again. He won't go back out into the space without her. He won't go around the world without her. They'll always be together, intimate and close. Now notice what he's going to do for his bride. Here is a description of Christ with his bride that we went to Ephesians 5 and Titus and other scriptures to show how a man and a woman should interrelate and what their different roles are in the marriage relationship. And what's he, what will he do for her? Will he treat her tenderly as his own flesh? As Ephesians 5 says, I show you a mystery. I speak of Christ and the church. All right, here's the mystery revealed. 
and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Wouldn't you like to be in this position? For the former things are passed away. They're gone. All the trials, the troubles, the tribulations, the sorrows of this life will be gone. Never to be revisited. That's pretty tender. Pretty loving. Make her secure. Remove all her doubts, her fears. Everything that plagues a human being, once she becomes his bride, will be gone. And a tender, loving, intimate relationship will be there forevermore. With no shadow of turning, with no difference, with no fights, with no discouragement. Perfect. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Well, he just described everything will be new. It won't be like it has been. It's not talking about burning up and redoing the earth. Isaiah 24 does not say that. Ellen G. White aside, that great horror of Thyatira. He said, Right, these words are true and faithful. This is going to happen. All that we've talked about these seven days is going to happen. It's true. It's faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the beginning and the end. He created it all, and without him was nothing made. And he is there at the end to finish it. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. We're to hunger and thirst for Christ. He said that in his instruction to the disciples. He that overcomes shall inherit all things. That reminds me of, of course, Revelation 2 and 3. Him that overcomes, him that overcomes, him that overcomes. Seven times. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Okay, the analogy is there again. Father and son. Be Christ and bride, father and son. And then he says, who won't be there? But the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, described in chapter 20. Anybody who is not willing to be loving and kind and sweet and gentle and obedient and subject and responsible will simply be burned up and forgotten. Never to be remembered, thought of, or spoken of again. Because there will be no sorrow and no tears and no crying, so all of that will be done away. If we will bow our knee to Christ and worship Him and overcome and grow, this is what He's going to give us. But if we insist on the works of the flesh, we won't be there. We'll be burned up and forgotten. It's not a religion of fear. It's a religion of hope. It's a religion as if you do this, I will give you this. 
of confidence, of strength, of believability, of trust, of faith. That this is what is before you. Why will you die, O Israel? Why won't you do this? He's encouraging us there in Ezekiel 33. He's saying, do what you ought to do. Succeed. He is positive. He wants us all there. And he says, why will you die? Why won't you take this and run with it? And that's what he's saying here. Here is what I promise you. Absolute, total peace, security, love, forevermore. No pain, no tears, no crying. Nothing will go wrong ever again. Wouldn't you like for your husband as you stand at the altar to be able to promise those to you on a physical level? and know that he could back it up and it would happen. I've never read a physical marriage vow that included all those things in verse 4. Because no man is capable of causing her to have all her tears gone and no more death or crying or pain or suffering or any kind of thing. You can't promise that. Miscarriage, stillborn child, kid that gets killed falling off his bicycle when he's six, on and on. Infidelity, lying, cheating, stealing, divorce, death. Can't promise freedom from those. But once we're made immortal and made the bride of Christ, He can carry through on that. And His promise is sure. And there came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying... So this is right at the end of the age. This is still prophecy. The seven last plagues. That's the last thing that happens before Christ comes back on his white horse and we with him to put down the rest of those who would not bow their knee. So the angel that had the seven last plagues talked with me and said, Come here. I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. God wanted us to see a picture of the way this will be. So... He showed a vision to John and says, this, look at this. This is the way it's going to be. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. That's the church. We read that in Hebrews 12 just a few moments ago. Having the glory of God, we will be glorified and be God. Didn't God say... Or Paul repeat, you are gods. Yes, we are here for the purpose of becoming God. That is the mystery of the ages Herbert Armstrong wrote about. We're not here to sit on a cloud and play a fiddle or read a magazine. We're here to become God, as God is God, and the bride of Christ. That's all the way through here. Kind begets kind. And you didn't marry a goat or a camel, did you? No, you married a human being. And Christ is going to marry a God. 144,000 of them, if you will. Same level. She can't be, in that sense, lesser than him. You want a mate that is on the same level you are. Now, he'll always be in charge. He'll always be the leader. But we'll be on the same level. Kind begets kind. And he will raise us to God kind. Having the glory of God. If you're not God, you won't have glory. 
And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So she will just shine like a fine cut gem. Then it describes the wall. Didn't we read about a wall in the Song of Songs? I'm a wall. I hope my little sister is a wall. This is a wall around the 144,000 with the Father and the Son as the leaders and impenetrable by harmongers, uh, uh, adulterers, fornicators, liars, thieves, and so on. They can't get in. We'll read that in a moment. So, the bride is as a wall, as described in Song of Songs. Anybody still think that isn't a prophecy back there? That it's just a sex manual? Oh, come on. Had a wall, great and high, with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels to guard the gates, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So the gates are named Gad, Asher, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, and so on. And he says that the apostles will be in charge of each of those twelve tribes, twelve apostles. Not the original daddies, because they weren't converted, but he's giving that job to the apostles. The original sons of Jacob will probably be in the second resurrection. They'll be way down the line, probably still be in the kingdom of God, But the apostles, with spiritual value, will be the ones in charge of each of the 12,000. The the bride, 144,000, 12 tribes of 12,000. It's the way God organizes. And it says it right here, the 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall. Now, doesn't he send... Zerubbabel with a plumb line to the church prior to this to measure its uprightness? That's what he says. So Jerusalem has to be built properly. And the Jews have no clue how to do that. Nor do they understand Christian conduct to be like Christ. They don't even accept it. You think God's going to use the Jews to build his temple? That's ludicrous. That's crazy. And yet the whole world believes it. Well, the whole Christian world, so-called. The city lies four square, and the length is as large as the breadth, and measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. This all works out to about 1,500 miles square, and probably high. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits. Oh... Uh, symbolic of the 144,000 according to the measure of a man and the building was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass utter perfection you couldn't build anything more beautiful or with higher grade materials than this when he tells us to build a temple he's not talking about this one there in Haggai he says there go to the mountains and bring wood and build a temple not this one Pure gold, the walls. Uh, And then he talks about all the precious stones. I won't go there for sake of time. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold as transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, 
For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of sun, neither of the moon to shine, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. All through the millennium, people will have this to look to. And the, na- the peoples which are saved shall walk in the light of it. That's only 144,000 that will be walking in the light of it, the bride. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor to it. They come to worship Jerusalem on the holy days. And the gates won't be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations to it or into it. So God will allow people to come in who are probably still human in the millennium who will give honor and glory to the Father and the Son and the Bride. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles... Remember, this is a marriage relationship between His Christ. The marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. And nothing that would defile that relationship will be allowed in the new temple or the new Jerusalem, or into the bride. She will be totally loyal and faithful. Neither whatsoever works an abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, the Protestant song doesn't read this way, doesn't sing this way. It says, Any who would might enter, and no one was denied. This is the new Jerusalem. That doesn't even fit this at all. It says that some will be denied. Anybody that isn't what they ought to be gets denied. And only those who are righteous and give honor and glory to God will be allowed. And then what's the role of the bride with Christ? Out of the throne comes water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. And it heals the nations. It heals the waters. No more sea. They'll all be turned flesh by the fresh by this torrent of water coming out from under the throne and be palatable for drinking, for raising fish, and so on. And the healing of the nations. And there'll be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him and see His face, and His name be in their foreheads. And no night, because it's always light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So this is a marriage that lasts eternally. We have lots of songs about eternity and the twelfth of never, and always and always, this is the only one that works that way. It doesn't end in death or pain. And he says... These sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets, his angels, to show to his servants the things which must shortly be done. Right here at the end, they're going to happen. I come quickly. He will come suddenly to his temple, Malachi 3. Blessed is he that keeps the sayings of the prophecy of this book. He says then down that he will, when he gets to the end, he says, don't seal up the sayings of the prophecy of this book in 10. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. In other words, you come to the point where there's no more time to work with. The ten virgins, they all slept. Five woke up. 
They had some oil, the others didn't. It was too late. The bridegroom came, took the five that were ready, left the others behind. So there comes a point where it's too late. You waited too long. You procrastinated too much. You didn't seek God with your heart. And therefore you're left behind and left out. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So there's the reward. Uh, The gift of eternal life is given, but the reward is based on uh, what you did with what you had to do with, whether you rule one city, five cities, ten cities, or so on. There's a difference. Again, he says he's the, the beginning and the end. Blessed are they that do his commandments... Wow, you mean they're still in effect here at the last few verses of the book of Revelation? The commandments are still there? I thought they were done away a long time ago. Oh, no. If you're going to get blessed, you've got to do His commandments. You've got to keep them. That they may have a right to the tree of life. Without the commandments of God, you cannot have eternal life. No way. No, the law is done away with except Jesus and your... Once saved, always saved. That's the biggest, simplest lie that Satan ever told. Well, maybe maybe in the garden. <laughs> nah. You'll brighten right up. Everything will be great once you know the difference between good and evil. No, those who keep the commandments have a right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. But he already said up there in chapter 21, For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. They're not allowed in. And I, Emmanuel, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. So it's all about the church. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Now, notice verse 17. This is important. And the Spirit and the Bride, the Spirit of God and His Bride, say, Come. She's hospitable. She's Proverbs 31. (coughs) She takes care of those who? Who does she say come to? Let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is athirst come. And whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. (coughs) She is going to teach the words of life, the word of God, the commandments of God. She is there to teach the children that live on into the millennium the way of God so that they can be her eternal spiritual children forevermore. (coughs) So it's not just Christ as is now, or the Father offering us salvation, then the bride is part of that. She is there with Him to offer salvation. We're not there to receive salvation anymore. We become God. And we offer salvation. What a grand and glorious climax to the Word of God. What a grand and glorious climax to a physical relationship we saw in the Song of Songs and through all those other scriptures we examined. And here, you see the climax and the end of all things where everything is perfect. (coughs) The absolute perfect marriage. So let us make our time here on this earth 
those who are married, make their keep their marriage as much as they can on the level of all these scriptures. And those of us who may not be married, let us be loyal and faithful to Christ and the Father in heaven that we might be sons and daughters and bride and friends forevermore with the God of the universe.